Life is so much richer and more full and more fulfilling if you take on whatever adversity is in front of you. If you take on that as that's the stuff that's going to make you the person that you want to be. Success doesn't make you the person you want to be. It doesn't. I mean, it it's it's awesome, you know, but the climb is so much better. Everyone you meet every single day is fighting a battle you may know nothing about. We're all in the process of overcoming. I'm Justin Wren, and my story has been heard by millions of people through my book, my TED Talk, podcast interviews, TV shows, professional fighting, and my foundation, Fight for the Forgotten. I believe we are all overcomers if we choose to overcome. We all have the option. I've been given the opportunity to overcome childhood trauma, sexual abuse, immense bullying, depression, suicidal ideation, substance use disorder, and I am a two-time suicide survivor. We are here to have conversations with some of the greatest minds of our time. Get ready to be inspired and to receive the tools and game plan to win this fight called life. Thank you for being here, for showing up for yourself. You, me, we have overcome 100% of our darkest days. I'm not done yet, and neither are you. This is your invitation to overcome. Joe, I thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is awesome. Yeah, I'm really grateful. There was, we're going to dig in deep to, I listened to a little bit of you being on other shows and podcasts, and it seemed like a common theme when people asked you how you got where you are. You would say overcoming adversity, Mm -hmm. or there'd be adversity after adversity that we'd have to overcome. Yeah. So that's the purpose of the show is really overcome. Like we've overcome hundred percent of our darkest days and I guess digging down, drilling into the tactics, um, into the strategies of how to overcome life's greatest challenges mm-hmm. and how to win this fight called life. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm really grateful you're here. Thank you for being here. Yeah. No, I mean, it's amazing that you have an entire podcast dedicated to this topic because I think it's really important. Thank you. And you, well, this, this is maybe backtracking a lot, but how did you get into, is it called, uh, speech writing at the <laughs> FEMA? <laughs> yeah. At FEMA. Oh man. Um, I worked for the Texas Longhorns okay. all through college in the, their media relations office. Um, actually what happened is my freshman year of college, I wanted to work for the Texas Longhorns and I, you, didn't for, know for, for those not watching you're wearing the burnt orange <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, now so yes. <laughs> yeah so i um i looked up the they at the time they had the staff directory on the website for the athletic department and i didn't know who was in charge but i just saw the words athletic director so i assumed that was the person who was in charge um so this is back in 2001 and so i called and emailed the athletic director for university of texas every day for 30 days wow and i was like every 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 email every call i would leave a little bit more about myself oh this and this and then eventually eventually i got myself an interview with the head of the pr department for the longhorns and um so i interviewed and he was like oh you're the guy who's been calling my boss like every day (laughs) you know so I, i got i got the job and so i did that all through college and i my main job was writing, writing about the basketball team, football, all that stuff. And so when I graduated from college, I writing was my best skill. And I was interested in going to DC and maybe working around government. And so I applied, I mean, I, I ended up flying to DC and I had 23 job interviews in two days. 
So in two, two days, in two days, I, I packed twenty. How do you even schedule that? <laughs> yeah. How did number twenty three? Yeah. <laughs> well, here's the crazy thing. So, the twenty third interview was at the White House. Whoa. And so this is so you're this, just warming up for the, yeah. for the big show. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so I, I ended up going to the meet the press secretary at the, for the White House at, at the time, Scott McClellan, and um, I went flew back to Austin, and a couple of days later, I got a phone call from um, the Office of Personnel Management, and they were like. Hey, at the uh, White House? yeah. Wow. And they were like, would you be interested in being a speechwriter for the Department of Homeland Security? And I was like, oh, that doesn't sound nearly as exciting as working in the White House. And then what happened is Hurricane Katrina hit. Oof. And yeah. I then learned that the job actually was being the speechwriter for the director of FEMA. Mm. And my my intern boss at the time, actually the White House press secretary, he emailed me. He was like, that would be a very sensitive experience for you. And so I packed all my stuff in Austin. I drove up to DC. And by the time I got there, the then director of FEMA resigned or was fired or whatever happened. And the new guy came in, David Paulson, and he was the fire chief of Miami, um, had a lot of emergency managers experience. And um, I started with him as his speechwriter. There were a lot of Austinites around in the White House. Yeah, it was was when Bush was president in 2000 to 2008. Yeah, so I um, I started. I was the speechwriter for you know for the director of FEMA. Like wow. I mean, that was my my first wow. day was there was a White House briefing. You know, it was wow. like so I was twenty two years old, and my job experience at that point had been writing press releases and stuff like that about Texas Longhorns football. Wow, that's intense. <laughs> I had um, I, I have family in Louisiana, Mississippi, and so. Uh, my grandparents lost a lot of their roof. Yeah. Um, my uncle, we, we didn't know where he was because we lost contact mm-hmm. with him for many days. And, and that's, that's a wild thing to see even people bounce, bounce back from an adversity and, and challenges to overcome. So what would you be writing in those? Would, would, yeah. would you find, would it just be about what's happening and what we're going to do about it? Or was there any sort of like hope and we're going to come back from this. Yeah, it was, it was kind of a mix. I would say maybe two thirds about what we were doing. Like, okay, this, this many, this much government money is turned converting into this much housing or support and resources for the States. Um, we traveled down to the Gulf um, and would, you know, do things, those types of things. And then about a third of it was talking about, you know, more of like, yeah, the hope and, you know, how we get forward from here. And it's, it's amazing now because my barber here in Austin he is one of the many people who were displaced because of, mm. of Katrina in, her, in New Orleans. So he, like many people, m- went from New Orleans to Houston originally, and then he ended up coming from Houston to Austin. And so he's been in Austin since since Katrina, basically. Wow. Um, and it's it's amazing because you know this city, this whole state actually um, has so many people who their roots are in new Orleans, but Katrina kind of displaced them. And, you know, for, for my barber, Jamar, for example, he's one of the people who, you know, life kind of got better for him because it it was a forcing function in Mm -hmm. a way of like, it kind of kicked him into a new life and he had to kind of make do and he, and he made it work here. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting point because oftentimes we, we don't see the, the, the lesson or the blessing mm-hmm. and, the, and the challenge. And what about you in your life? Do you see any moments like that, that you didn't think things were going right or you're forced into something and then all of a sudden you're like, oh wait, I'm, I'm actually where I'm supposed to be or because of this, yeah. now I'm able to, to do what I love. Yeah, I mean, 
definitely I've had many of those moments. I think, I think if there's any big headline of my life, when I think about it, it's pushing myself past victim mentality. Mm. Um, Cause there's been several occasions where it would have been easy probably for me to be like, Oh, because this happened or this happened to me and that type of thing. Um, I think when I was a kid, I mean, my earliest, literally my earliest childhood memory memory is, um, uh, my, my, my dad was around until I was about three, maybe two, a little, like almost three. And, um, one of my earliest memories is of, we lived in this small little place in central Texas, about an hour North of here and where in Colleen. Oh, wow. That's yeah. where I'm from. That's oh, wow. my hometown. Yeah, I'm a so kangaroo. Same. Same. What? You're same. a root? I'm a kangaroo. <laughs> yes. Stop it right now. Yes. I, I mean, my I, mom I, went to Ellison. I went to Colleen. <laughs> we can't all be roots. Yeah. Your mom went to Ellison. Really? Mm-hmm. How old is your mom? She just turned, well, she turned 61 next month. Okay. She's a little older than me. You're a little <laughs> younger, but yeah. Okay. So yes, Colleen. Yeah. yeah so we were, so my, my, my dad was in the, the military and- uh, my mom's dad and stepdad were in the military, so that's why she lived there. And so we were living in this small little place, and I, I you know, I was three. And I don't know if I was potty trained or not, but I guess I was because I was like, oh, I, I need to use the bathroom. My, my, we were, my dad was in the only bathroom in the house, and um, I knocked on the door, and by the time he came out, I had already peed on myself. Mm. And he, like, spanked me. And it's, I remember that very vividly because it was like, oh, wow, like, why is this my fault? <laughs> like, that, yeah. like, you know, and like, when I look back at that, I realize, oh, it's, I have more empathy for how he reacted because he's probably frustrated that like, there is only one bathroom in this house. And maybe he's even frustrated that he has three kids. He probably didn't even want to necessarily have three kids at that point. He's like, maybe 25 years old. My mom was 22, three kids or something. Um, and so when I was younger, I was like just mad at him. Like, Oh, like that's just terrible parenting. But when I got older, I was like more like, Oh, he's probably just like really just frustrated with where his life was at that point. And so I, there's just been a lot of instances like that of realizing that, um, you know, to get yourself out of victim mentality, it takes a lot of empathy for the other person in the situation or people. And then also just like grace so that you don't see everything as it's happening to you. Mm. Like yeah. pulling back their perspective. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I like that. And then also being able to, you know, as we as we grow and as we age, we start to get more and more life perspective and and we can start to relate that. You know what? Some of the some of the things were wrong and not okay, but at the same time, like they're probably doing the best they could. Yeah. Yeah. And so how about growing up in Colleen? I mean, I, I didn't have that experience. Y'all too did. Um, but in a military town, yeah. lots of transplants, lots of different kinds of people. Um, did you grow up on the base, outside the base? Outside the base. Outside the base. And so, let's see. Where? Um, <laughs> for, for Hood. Oh, you were? Or, not for, sorry, sorry. Um, I was born in Temple. Oh, me too. And then Scott and White. Scott and White <laughs> yeah. All of us were, right? Yeah. Um, and then we lived in closer to Belton. And then okay. we lived closer to Harker Heights. Yeah. I lived um, in Harker Heights. Yeah. And so my, my, my parents split when I was around three. Um, and my dad wasn't in my life after that. I mean, mm. literally like no child support, no wow. birthday cards, nothing. Um, and so it was my mom raising my two older brothers and me, um, solo. Um, and then, yeah, we were 
really poor. I mean, we I remember getting robbed of bologna and Pop-Tarts. Like, literally, like, someone came to our house and stole our bologna and cheese and Pop-Tarts. Like, we lived in that kind of neighborhood. Wow. Um, and I, um, yeah, so I just, I, I remember scarcity. I remember mm. being very familiar with scarcity and knowing that, oh, wow, like, we don't have stuff. Like, even, even our neighbors who were still very poor working class, they, if, you know, they had more things in their refrigerator when you opened it. Right. So I just really remember the, probably the first seven years of my life, that's what it felt like. Um, and then when I was eight, we moved to Greenville, South Carolina. So that's when the kind of the narrative started changing a little bit because, um, we moved to South Carolina and my mom, she was still working two jobs, two, three jobs, but it got a little bit better. Um, because my grandmother was there. And so having, even just having a little bit of more childcare and stuff like that, it just made it a little easier on my mom. Yeah. And man, I just think single moms are, are total saints. I mean, they are, they are a, a unique breed that are just incredible humans. Um, I mean, I, I met Amy when, uh, she's a single mom or, or divorced and then, yeah. and then but she, but just around. dads yeah. are around, mm-hmm. yeah. dads are around, but, but I just look at you and I'm like, wow, you are rock star mom and it's 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 awesome yeah to see and to even think about your mom having two three jobs what do you think you learned from from your mom seeing her do that to provide for you three boys that's 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 a having two or three jobs with three boys (laughs) three the three boys part yeah Yeah. i have two girls and i'm like oh three boys that's the next that's next level yeah and now that i'm older too i'm even aware of like even just more nuanced stuff like three black boys in when we move from i mean fort hood is more open because it's a military base so it's more you know there's people of all stripes that are in the military but then we moved to South Carolina. It was much more, oh, wow. I started becoming aware of like, oh, wow, we're in an area where there everyone doesn't look like us. Or if they do, it's because we're supposed to be living in a certain part of town and other people live in a different part of town and that kind of thing. Um, so just now looking back, realizing my mom was raising three black boys in like the deep South, South Carolina in the, at this time. It, it's pretty, it's just, it's really impressive. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I really learned, I mean, I learned grit from my mom, Mm. period. Like I, she is like grit and resilience personified. Um, because I, I vividly remember watching her do taxes. I think this was 96. I think I was maybe 12 or 13. And she was, she made like $14,000 that year, you know, with three boys working, you know, and it's like, It's like, I don't even know how that, I don't even, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't even, I still don't know how the math works, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, we had food stamps and stuff, so I know that that helped. And, but, but it's just, you know, it wasn't for lack of her working. She was working multiple jobs, like near full time, you know, like all this stuff. Um, but it's just, it she, you know, graduated from high school and then had three boys between the ages of 18 and 22. And then my dad left, you know? And so she got kicked into this life of like, you're in it, you know? And, um, she just, it's funny. A few years ago, I took her to Paris for Christmas and I had like four or five days of just like one-on-one time walking around the city and stuff with her. And I asked her, um, like, 
what was the other version of your life if it wasn't this? And she was like, oh, I probably would have been like a flight attendant and lived in Europe and adopted a kid or something. And when I look at the life she actually has, it's like, it's not that dissimilar from that. She, she didn't dream of this like big life for herself. She just wanted to be helpful, you know? Mm -hmm. And she kind of did it a little bit more reactively because she had three kids and then had to, but she, even after us, after I graduated from high school, she became a foster mom and fostered like two dozen kids. Wow. Wow. And two dozen. Yeah. Yeah. Your mom is a champ. (laughs) What's her name? (laughs) Sabrina. Sabrina. (laughs) Thank you, Sabrina. Yeah. And she, um, and she bought her first home at 45. She graduated from college last year at 60. She, you know, so, 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 yeah, so she just, so I just learned like she, she responded to life and didn't, you know, she didn't, I, when I look at my whole family history, I look at her as the person who decided like nothing in my life is about being a victim. Hmm. Even though these things happened, they didn't happen to me. You know, I had some agency in, in why they happened and she just took on the responsibility and gritted through a lot of tough stuff. So. This podcast is brought to you by Onnit.com. Onnit.com slash overcome. Use the code overcome to save yourself 10% on, I'm holding in my hands, the Alpha Brain Focus Shot. It's in this cool container. Amy's got the website pulled up for I you do. guys watching on YouTube. Did you drink your Focus Shot this morning? Absolutely. I, th- I, I thought you did. I did too. Yeah. How do you like it? Oh my God, I feel so good. I always feel Because it's early right now energy. on a Monday. Yeah, you know what? Yeah. This is this is one of the earliest podcasts we've done. Well, this is early for you. Early for you. <laughs> well, to, to go on the show, yeah, for sure. And it promotes focus and energy, supports a positive mood state, helps manage mental stress. And for me, I truly feel like it helps me get in the flow state faster, stay there longer. Whether I'm going into sparring, I had one before I went to sparring yesterday, and I had a four and a half hour training session because they were stacked i went from 12 to 1 30 and then straight over to the gym from 2 to 4 30 4 40 came home tired last night mm-hmm. but i was focused the entire time i feel like it's very reliable about yeah. how i'm gonna feel the more i've used it the more doing this show really the more i'm able to know that when i drink it i'm gonna be on point my brain's gonna be functioning really well i feel generally good and that's been so nice to be able to know that it is not going to suddenly make me jittery or suddenly make me feel nauseous or whatever it is. Yeah, well, that that for me is important because some of the products with caffeine, which just has some caffeine, but it's like plant-based and it's healthy and it's a low dose. It's not jittery bad. It's not jittery <laughs> at all. And sometimes I'll have you know one of those energy drinks or something and then I'm over-caffeinated, over-stimulated, and then I feel like I can't think as good. That's not good. Because it's, it's bothering me. Yeah. And all the Alpha Brain line is super reliable. The capsules, my favorites, the one of my favorites are the Instant, then the Black Label, and my all-time favorite is what we're talking about now. The Alpha Brain Focus Shots, they're incredibly good tasting. The tropical flavor, they also have peach, I believe, but mine's the tropical because it's passion fruit. And that's it delivers consistently. Fruit. And sometimes I'll take one and I'll split it between two smoothies when I make it for us in the morning. I'll just throw a little bit in each mm-hmm. and just, just adds a little something to like our protein powder and the fruit and whatever else we've got in there. Yeah, and thank you so much on it for supporting me, my comeback to fighting. 
uh, Fight for the Forgotten, and this podcast. They make it possible. So please support our sponsors, who honestly, I think, have the best supplement line in the world. And our favorite products, Alpha Brain or Total Human, get the best in one packet uh, of morning support and a night support. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being here with Overcome with Justin Wren and onit.com. Be sure to use that code. Mm -hmm. Use the code Overcome. Save yourself some money. Yeah, I, I don't know. When you said responsibility, I'm reminded there is, um, so there's the Statue of Liberty, right? Have you heard of the Statue of Responsibility? No. Um, they've been trying to get it made for like the last 20 years or, or beyond that. Could you look that up? Actually, yeah, there's a, a picture of it, but wow. uh, Victor Frankel. And uh-huh. now, I love Victor Frankel. Yeah. And so oh, his family Victor. is championing, championing it and they have an artist I believe it's out of Utah. They're trying to get it put up in San Francisco wow. because yes, there's the, it's this, up. It's Mike, up. If you want to pull, pull it up, Mike, so you can see it, but it's these two hands. Um, and I think it's representation. Wow. Um, it's not coming up yet for us, Mike, but uh, anyways, Amy, you could actually just show them it on your computer. Yeah. Um, he's trying to log us in. He's, he'll pull it up. Oh, we're good. Yeah. He'll but, pull it up um, and post, but I can show you right now. This is, oh, wow. This is, there it, it is. but there it is. Yeah. I just think of, I mean, like, that's amazing. That's what your mom, I think, was doing for you three boys was, um, and what we have a responsibility to do, right? Like, mm-hmm. the with personal liberty, like, there's also like public responsibility or family responsibility. Like, mm-hmm. with that freedom comes, how are you going to, how are you going to act and be responsible in this life and like take care of others? And mm-hmm. I'm just thinking, like, wow, she did it for you three. And then she volunteered, signed up, ponied up to like help another two dozen <laughs> kiddos. Yeah. And these kids, I mean, I, you know, we had a, we had a poor upbringing. Like I said, food stamps, like really tough neighborhoods and all this stuff. But we were healthy, thankfully. We, you know, we, my mom always made sure that we lived kind of close to an elementary school so that we were further away from crime stuff. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know if she was cognizant that that's what she was doing, but I think she just knew that putting us near the schools would make it safer, even if it was a poor neighborhood. Um, but these kids that she fostered, they have some tough stories. Yeah. I mean, some of these kids were four and five years old and had already more stuff happen in their lives than most people experience in like a lifetime in terms of like things that you, like trauma experiences. Wow. And just, I mean, yeah, it's really amazing that she she took that on, you know? And my, my mom's just like natural caretaker. I mean, she's right now she's caring for my grandfather who's suffering with dementia. Mm-hmm. Before that, she was um, caring for her, her mother, my grandmother, who passed last January after having COVID. Um, before that, she was the legal guardian for her, her boyfriend who had a major stroke and he had, you know, she was, he basically, she was caring for him and, you know, so she's and just going to college and <laughs> yeah. So she just like, she's like a machine yeah. of care, you know, like a machine just, yeah. of care, man, that is, that would be her fight nickname. Do you- <laughs> Sabrina, the machine of care. <laughs> Stepping into the octagon. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm going to hold you so tight. <laughs> Struggle snuggles is what we call them. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so great, man. Oh. I love your mom already. It's so cool. Wow. Did did she do anything that you recall like I I guess I was thinking about people who 
suffer from a, ment- a, a victim mentality mm-hmm. or a scarcity yeah. mindset mm-hmm. that we're in maybe the Great Depression and never overcame it. Mm-hmm. Like, what did she instill in you that didn't put that in you? Or do you have that come up sometimes? Where is yeah. that for you? No, I, yeah, I, it's, I'm very, very fortunate that in some of this is because I'm the baby because two older brothers and they definitely don't have it as much as I do. Whereas I benefited from watching them and seeing, honestly witnessing the world through all of their eyes in a way. Um, so I definitely think I suffered from the scarcity mindset the least. Um, and I think some of that is because, because I was the youngest, I was the person who spent the most time with my mom. And so I would put myself in these situations where I would get myself in these situations with my mom where my older brothers would be off hanging out with their friends or something and I would be with my mom doing something. So she found some ways, you know, either through church or other things where, you know, oh, I got free tickets to go to the theater and oh, I, I'm i going to, we're going to go to this play and this kind of thing. And so from, you know, when I was eight, nine, 10 years old, I would be going with my mom to some local theater to go see something. And so I, I just, I remember getting that early exposure with her of a life that people had outside of our neighborhood. And even when I was, I remember when I was 11 or 12, someone I think gifted her tennis lessons. And so, um, so she got tennis lessons from this like former tennis pro and I was the person who went with her. So sometimes I would get to like hit the balls. And so, so to this day I get, I play tennis because it's like, I kind of learned how to play tennis. And, and so in a weird way, even though we grew up the way that we grew up and it was like struggle and all that stuff, because I was the youngest and I was the closest to my mom, I got a glimpse of abundance earlier in life. And I think that carried me through, um, to a place where once I kind of got it in my head that I was going to be the first person in my family to graduate from college. Cause I, I kind of decided that when I was like nine I mean, oh. I think I told my mom when I was nine, I was like, I'm going to college. She was like, that's great. You just got to figure out how to pay for it. And so I started, I mean, 10, 11 years old, I was researching how to pay for college. Wow. And so wow. my my senior year of high school- it's probably not a very high Google search for, <laughs> yeah. for elementary school yeah, kids. Yeah, no. And so by, by the time I got to senior year of high school at Colleen, I knew I, I applied for over 110 scholarships and I won 30 of them. Wow. Because I spent like one day, every day I wrote an essay and all this application for a scholarship. And so I just, it trained me early on, I think, to to know that there was a bigger world out there than what was I was con- constrained to because of socioeconomic reasons. And so I just, I think I spent most of my childhood like figuring out how to get access to that world. Where do you think the tenacity comes from to one, I mean believe that um so going from a victim mentality to believing that i'm deserving mm-hmm. of all 110 scholarships i'm applying mm-hmm. to or, or or i'm at least going to apply to them yeah. and i'm going to get yeah. one of them yeah. you know even if it's just one mm-hmm. and then to email somebody 30 you know at least once a day mm-hmm. 30 days in a row until you get a yes mm-hmm. um and i'm just thinking that started early that yeah. started early for you to be googling that at 9 10 11 years old mm-hmm. And then sending out all these applications. Yeah. It wasn't for... even Google back then. It was like a uh, Lycos. Or... <laughs> I've never even heard of that. Lycos or like Netscape. Netscape. Okay. Netscape Navigator. Netscape, yeah. <laughs> Netscape okay. Navigator. But uh, 
what what kind of scholarships were you applying to and and how did you even was someone guiding you to do that or you're just intuitively like this is what I'm going to do this is no. how I'm going to get it yeah i was intuitively doing it it's funny you mentioned victor frankel um i didn't actually read master for meaning for, until many years later but in middle school i remember starting to get really into biographies hmm. so i I read, I remember reading like about MLK, Einstein, Ben Franklin, just all these different people. And one of the commonalities for all of them was that somehow they went to college and usually they won some award or some scholarship to be able to pay for it. And so at 11, 12 years old, I, I knew that that was something that was an option. Like it was, oh, people figure out a way to do this, mm. you know? And it's not necessarily even because they like are an athlete or musician or whatever, but they somehow, someone sees something and they get a scholarship. And so I think on the scholarship track, it was because of reading these books and like learning that that was something that was possible. But on the tenacity front, I would just say, I I vividly remember my watching my mom make the transition from working two jobs constantly to having a, a brief moment where she only had one job. Um, and it was when I was, let's see, I was 12. Um, and I remember it because we went to a, a black Baptist church in South Carolina and I met the first black man that I ever knew who graduated from college and owned his own business. And it was this man named Horace Williams and he owned a franchise of pizza huts. And my mom got a job basically as his assistant and office mm -hmm. manager. And he was the first person in him going to our church, seeing my, my mom and her boys. He, I mean, she got into a situation where she was able to not have to work full time, a second job. Yep. And so that next year was the first time we ever did like a family vacation. Like, I think he like helped pay for us to go to either Myrtle beach or Charleston. I can't remember where first. Um, and, um, and then when, when my oldest brother turned, like was working age, he started working for Pizza Hut. And then when I was working age, I started working for Pizza Hut. And I just remember that whole period from like age 12 through 15 as like the come up for my family. And it wasn't because we became millionaires or won the lottery or anything. It was just, I could work and my brother was working and it was like, okay, we were at the first time where we weren't scratching and clawing and like put food on the table. And so I, I just remember that whole, how that felt like feeling like, oh, wow. Like I'm not, we're not like hand to mouth right now. And even though we kind of still were, but it just, it felt so good to feel like, okay, we got ourselves out of this hole. And it wasn't just like my mom, my mom did most of the work obviously, but feeling like we were contributing to like felt really good. Like, okay, mm -hmm. we're in this, we're, we're getting out of this thing. Um, and so I don't know. I think I still keep that like yeah. feeling a feeling like, okay, like you can get yourself out of this, mm -hmm. you know, like it's, you can, yes, you can, you can say, Oh, woe is me. And Oh, this didn't happen for me and all this stuff. But you can also use that energy and say like, okay, like, like how can, how can I, and we lift ourselves out of this? Mm. I love that. So his name was Horace Williams. Yeah. Um, how much do you think was that just a, a a seed of hope, or did he change the trajectory of of your life or your mom's life, or or be just to let yeah. you see it? Someone yeah. doing it. Man, I really, I think that he 
he is definitely one of those people who changed the trajectory of our lives for sure. I think, I mean, we've been very blessed with different people at different times in our lives. I mean, I, for me, especially I, I met him. So we all, I mean, we went again, we went to church with him and I remember going after church, usually we would go to my grandmother's house and there would be like a big kind of almost like Thanksgiving dinner. But once a month, usually he, Horace would take 10 or 15 people from church, this black Baptist church. And we would go to a restaurant for brunch. And that was the first time I ever heard about brunch. I was like, what is this? <laughs> and so there would be like 15 black people in like a Applebee's or Chili's or whatever. And I remember one time watching him, the check came and he just put his card down and he didn't look at the check. And I was just like, and we never ate at restaurants. So I was just like, wow. Like, you know, yeah. just like, wow, he didn't look at how much it cost. He just paid for like 15 of us to have brunch, you know? And it wasn't the money that excited me. It was just like, I remember just watching him across the table and just looking like he was at a place of comfort that just was like, it was like he had a halo around him, you know? And it was mm. just like, wow, he's like accessing some world that to that point I had only seen on maybe like the Cosby show or like Fresh Prince of Bel-Air or something. Um, so that was definitely a, a, a big part. And then the next year, um, when I was in eighth grade, I, I was running track and we got a new track coach and his name's Rob Murphy. And um, he, he years later, he told me that he never wanted to get his CDL license to have, so he didn't have to drive the, the school bus or yeah, van. Yeah. So he would, he would never do that. So he'd drive his own car to the track meets. And so one day after one of the meets, um, everyone else got on the bus and he was like, oh, I'll drop you off at home, Joa. So we're in the car from a track meet, I think at Clemson University back to Greenville, which is like, you know, 40 minute drive. And I'm telling, I end up somehow I'm 12, 13 and only thinking about myself mostly. Um, so I end up telling him my life story. And at the end of me talking for probably, you know, the whole car ride, I remember the first thing he said was, wow, your mom is amazing. Hmm. And he had never met my mom, but he, but I was, that statement just changed my whole life because I realized that, oh, wow. I'm not even just living for myself. Like I'm a reflection of, I'm, you know, I'm one link in this chain that's going many generations before me. And what my life is a testimony to my, what my mom has been able to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've kind of just kept living that way. Like I have to make the most of the gifts and the blessings opportunities I have that weren't even available for my mom or people before me. Yeah. Wow. I'm loving this conversation, man. It's so <laughs> cool to get to get to, learn about your mom, her being a champ, um, even the moment of inspiration at Pizza Hut, <laughs> the jobs and the, the tra- trajectory of your life. And now you're an entrepreneur, have been mm-hmm. for many years. Running for office. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and so tell us about that because I wanted to make a, the connection between, I thought this was on silent, but I wanted to make the connection between like you seeing that at the table, mm-hmm. being able to pay without even looking at the check. Yeah. Also being able to provide a, a s- steady job. Mm-hmm. Um, and then y'all being able to work at P- Pizza Hut. Yeah. And then you becoming, um, you know, an entrepreneur, having a black owned business, mm-hmm. empowering others, providing services, and yeah, getting getting ready to go for family off. Or, uh, I mean, public office. Yeah. I'm really excited to to hear this part of your journey. Yeah. Well. So. I mentioned how I was a speechwriter um, after college. 
And part of me was interested in like the public service aspect of like working in government and that type of thing. But it wasn't until I was doing that for a while that I started almost like waking back up this creative entrepreneurial side of myself that I didn't realize was there from youth. I mean, now, I mean, my grandmother's passed now, but if you were to ask her, you know, when I was four and five years old, if someone asked, what do I want to be when I grow up? I would always say, been a man. Like I, from a very young age, I knew I wanted to be in business. And <laughs> when I was um, 11, my middle brother, Ramaya, uh, he and one of his best friends, Kenneth, they, they borrowed a, one of our neighbor's lawnmower and they would go to our neighbors in this working class neighborhood and they would say, hey, we'll cut your grass next week for $20. Um, and so I watched them do that for a summer and I was like, huh, that's kind of interesting. They're both making $10 and you know, they're only a couple years older than me. They're not like big or anything. Um, so the next year, <clears throat> what I did is I went to the same neighbor and borrowed the lawnmower and I knocked on the same neighbor's doors and I said, hey, I'll cut your grass right now for $15. And so in a very short order, I dominated the business in the neighborhood. Um, and cause it was more money for me. And then also quicker service for the neighbors getting their yards cut. Um, so that was kind of the beginning of my entrepreneurial journey. And then when I was in school, I was like, man, I, I was thinking about like, oh, wow, I can, what can I do in school? And I was like, oh, I can start selling candy and bubble gum or whatever. So that was my second business, selling candy to my classmates. <laughs> um, but then once I got the job at Pizza Hut, when I was working age, I was like, I never looked back. I was like, oh, I can make money working this job and I get pizza every night. Cool. I'll do that. And because I didn't think about what I had been doing as entrepreneurship. I was mm -hmm. just thinking of it as like, oh, I was working while I was underage. And, but it wasn't until after I graduated from college and I was a speechwriter and I was like, wow, something, this work is interesting, but it's not really speaking to that soul part of me. And I realized that that was entrepreneurship. And so I moved back to Austin from DC, um, 2009, actually the week after Obama was inaugurated, I moved back to Austin and, um, I decided that I was going to pursue entrepreneurship full time. That was going to be my thing. How would you describe or define entrepreneurship to you? How do you see it? What is it? Yeah. I have a very broad definition of it. I think it's pursuing resources and access despite your limitations or constraints. So to me, any person who is trying to get themselves into rooms that they're not already in or don't, are, don't have the ability to get into or anyone who's trying to get resources, whether that's money or, um, you know, abundance in some other form of life or whatever, um, to me, that's entrepreneurship. So I didn't have some narrow definition of, oh, entrepreneurship is going to raise $5 million from a VC and building a billion dollar company. I was like, entrepreneurship is basically hustling in a way where you're trying to create something that didn't exist before. Fightfortheforgotten.org. You can go check out Fight for the Forgotten, the foundation that I started. It is my passion project. It is something that I love so much because of the people we get to help. We get to help the pygmy tribe who adopted me in help themselves. We say opportunity is greater than charity. Charity can be great, but opportunity is just always better. That's why we've drilled something like 80 water wells already. 
providing over 30,000 people clean water. We've started sustainable farms, bought back over 3,000 acres of land for the people who originally owned it, put it in their name. We built 32 homes, and now we're about to start a health center, a school, and a marketplace. They're going to have a maternity ward, a pediatrics unit, and a dental suite. You can join the Fight for the Forgotten Fight Club at fightfortheforgotten.org. We would love, love, love to invite you on this journey to join this fight arm in arm with us. Our fight club, it's a monthly giving club. You can give $5 or more a month, and that empowers us to empower people. Thank you for being on this journey with us. I invite you to come along for the ride. It's been absolutely epic, putting love and compassion in action and fighting for people. Fightfortheforgotten.org. Join our fight club. So my my first business was a social media consulting agency. Um, and then you had a shoe business? And then I had a sne- sneaker Sneakers, store yeah. in downtown sneaker Austin. Yeah. And I realized retail, I'm not good at retail. Amy <laughs> um, <laughs> had a retail Same. store. Yeah, it's retail is tough. <laughs> what was it called? It was called Sneak Attack. Cool. Sneak yeah, Attack. Yeah, it was a great name. <laughs> I mean, name. it was a fun business too. Like I met so many people. It was, it was community building. But what I really learned in the experience of doing the social media agency and then doing the sneaker shop was my strength as an entrepreneur is in community. It's like, I am really good at galvanizing people around something. Hmm. Um, so that's, that's kind of became my calling card. So now, you know, now I've been doing local or for the last 10 years and it's, it's a community driven business. It's literally, it's, you know, there are so many choices I could have made differently if I wanted to maximize profits or all these other things, but I was really just maximizing community the whole time. So that's what I've been doing. Yeah. Can you explain, uh, for the listeners what the business is yeah. and what it revolves around with community. And uh, the reason I say that is anytime I go travel somewhere, mm-hmm. I, I don't want to go where everybody else I know, goes. I know. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm a soon to be client of yours uh, <laughs> yeah. or in the community because yeah. I want to go where the locals enjoy going. And so it doesn't matter if I'm in another country, mm-hmm. um, another city. I normally like find someone, hit it off with someone in conversation. I'm like, Hey, where do you go to yeah, eat? Yeah. Where, do, where, do, where do you like to stay? Yeah. Or where would you take a friend? Yeah. You know? So that, I mean, that's kind of how I started this business because so when I moved back to Austin and I started the social media agency and the sneaker boutique, what happened is it was 2009 and we were in the recession and retail was one of the hardest hit industries, obviously with the recession. And so I went, I basically had a, I drove my car from Austin to DC and I I stopped in every city, like I'm talking Richmond, Memphis, Little Rock, like every town. And I went to the sneaker stores in those cities and I knew that they were hurting because it was a recession. And so I would go meet the owners and I'd be like, Hey, like, do you have any shoes that you can't sell? I'll buy them off of you. So I just gray marketed basically my product. So instead of buying the shoes directly from a Nike or Adidas or whatever, what I did is I went to the, the sneaker shop owners. I was like, hey, like I'll buy $1,000 worth of sh- shoes that you can't sell. And so I went and I did that. I spent like $20,000 just driving from Austin to DC, stopping at sneaker stores and buying inventory. Whoa. And so- That is a sneak attack. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so what I, yeah. And so what I, what I learned in that too is like, Whenever I go to these towns, I'd like I want to know where know where locals go. Like, where can I go get a drink? Where can I go get food? That kind of thing. Um, but then when I came, when I started my sneaker boutique, when I went, if you search shoes or sneakers on you know Yelp, 
then you would it would send you to Foot Locker or whatever store was in the mall before you would come to my locally owned business. Mm. Um, and so I was like, man, that's problematic. So I, I just had this idea of wanting to start something that supported local businesses and didn't make them have to compete with all these big corporate chains. Mm. Um, and so in late 2012, I my, a friend and I, we kind of st- were tossing around the idea for a few months and then we landed on Localer. Um, and it, basically I handpicked 12 of my friends in Austin to recommend where they eat and drink in Austin. We built a website. We launched it the week before South by Southwest 2013. And the whole premise was helping travelers experience local, just like know the best local places to eat, drink, shop, that kind of thing. Um, and so we launched it right before South by Southwest. 5,000 people ended up using it the first week wow. because the people were coming in town for South by Southwest and they were like, where should I get barbecue? And, you know, where should I get ta- ta- tacos, breakfast tacos or whatever? Um, and so we've kind of just kept doing the same thing since. And we've morphed from a website to a iPhone app, you know, magazine. Now we're a subscription, email subscription service, but it's the same mission of helping travelers experience local. And we have locals now in 204 cities around the world. And they rec- those locals recommend where they eat, where they drink, where they shop, where they hang out. At what point did you back up and sort of go, oh, this is what I'm good at. I'm good at galvanizing people for something. At, like, did you have to do work around that or did it just sort of come to you? Like, what made you realize that? Yeah, Um I think I remember when I had my sneaker boutique, it was South by Southwest 2010. And I had, um, I think I had something like 30 different bands play in the sneaker store during South by Southwest that year. And I, so I had people coming in the shop and hanging out, you know, and I realized, man, this is, this isn't just a sneaker store. This is like a community space. Hmm. And what's what's amazing now is my location at the time was um, if you're at if you're in Austin where City Hall is it's between it's on Second Street um, and Cesar Chavez and right downtown and my sneaker store was literally in City Hall hmm. so there's a there's a retail location on the ground floor of, of Austin City Hall and that's where my sneaker boutique was so it kind of it actually, looking back, it makes sense that I was thinking of it more as a community space than just a sneaker stop, a sneaker shop. Um, so that was like the first inkling that okay, this, I'm I'm a community person. This isn't just retail. Like I wasn't measuring the success of that week based on like how many shoes I sold. I was like, well, we had all these people come in the store and just have a good time. Um, and then a few years later, when Formula One first came to Austin. Um, I basically got put in charge of putting together a music festival for Formula One coming to town. So that first year, 20, 2012, um, I put together a, I think I ended up booking 40, over 40 local Austin bands and musicians to play a fe- the three-day festival like for Formula One. So it was, we, rent, we rented out Cedar Street Courtyard on downtown and had, you know, thousands of people come to this space to watch bands. Um, and so I just realized like, I'm good at that. That's, and it's the reason why I'm good at that is because I get helpers high from that. 
<laughs> I get like I I love. I've never I, heard of it said, said like that. Helpers, <laughs> yeah. Like I realize I know what that you feels get like. that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And like my, I realize now why my, I I definitely get that from my mom because I realize like why is she so quick to and willing to to serve and put herself in a position where she's giving so much, and it's like I do the same thing. I'm the first person willing to give and help and all that stuff, and and I and I get a lot of joy out of it. I get like that endorphin rush out of like helping people have a good time. So it, it works today, even with local or like I help little people are like, I'm going to Paris for the first time. I'm like, Oh, we got you covered. Let me know. You know, <laughs> that's awesome. What has been one of your favorite stories that has maybe come out of local air and making someone's experience just something special, or maybe you have one of I mean, your own. Yeah. My, I was going to say this is selfish, but my own story is probably my favorite. Um, because you know, a lot of people, when they start a tech co company, they're like, oh, I'm going to make a unicorn, which is like a, you know, billion dollar startup and stuff. And I'm like, well, I didn't make a unicorn, but I definitely found one um, in, in my wife. And because uh, I, I met my wife through my business. Really? So, yeah. That's the awesome. Yeah. The summer of 2017, um, we were local or what we were in about 50 cities and we were expanding to Spain. So we were going to add Madrid and Barcelona. And I needed a translator to do the Spanish translations, but Spain Spanish. And so I emailed all my investors and was like, hey, do you know anyone who speaks Spain Spanish? I want to do translations that way, you know. And one of my investors at the time, he wrote back and was like, oh, I know someone. She lives in LA. And I was like, oh, that's great. I'm actually flying to LA for work in a few days. So I went out there and ended up meeting her. We had a 10, a, like a rushed 10 minute meeting. And I was like, hey, can you do these translations? She was like, yeah, I can, cool. So I hired her on the spot to do part-time, you know, hourly wage trans translations. Um, so that's seven, eight months of that. And then months later, um, she emails me a translation back. She's like, oh, I'm actually in Austin. I'm like, oh, wow, what are you doing in Austin? She's like, oh, I'm, I'm a musician. I'm on tour with Lana Del Rey. And I'm like, oh, whoa, what? <laughs> and so we ended up, I was like, oh, let's get a drink. So we ended up getting a drink and like honestly just hitting it off and talking until in, in a coffee shop in Austin until 4 a.m. Um, and a few days later, I texted her like, hey, would you mind if I came to your show in Sacramento? So I flew to Sacramento and went to her show there. And we had like our first date there and it just hit it off. So when we we literally just, we got married last Labor Day in a place in Madrid that we discovered from Localer. Wow. It's <laughs> so funny. I, I saw her today on your um, on your political website. Uh -huh. And just yesterday, I was on the radio for Austin 360 uh -huh. announcing the new Blues on the Green lineup. Yep. I knew every single artist except her. And I thought, I wonder who that is. And then the next day, you know, <laughs> I, I Yeah, she just, they, they just got it down. Like, She's oh, playing Blues on the Green. And, yes, and, for uh, Black Joe Lewis yep, and Melot. Yep. Um, Mela, yeah. yeah. I've, known, I've known Joe for, for many years as well. Well, that was the <laughs> one I was like, ooh, I want to go to that one. Yeah. And then, yeah. And, and plus, I was just wondering about her. So that's really fun. <laughs> Just if we're, in town, yeah. if we're in town, maybe we can go. Yeah. I think we are. Okay, yeah. Great. That's yeah. awesome. And then, wow. What, no, what we're a story. Not. we're not. No, we're not. Okay. Well, we Damn it. Been there. Yeah. We we'll be at the next there. one. Yeah, I'll tell you yeah. about our next show. Yeah. That's that's incredible. Um, yeah, so, so it was like. You found your unicorn. Yeah, <laughs> really. No, truly. It's really amazing because, <laughs> you know, like she, it literally came about through the business. I mean, it just. Yeah, it, the way it manifested and all that, it's it's been amazing. And how long have you all been together now? So now Five it's years? four and a half, four years. half years. Yeah, I got married. Congratulations. Oh, Labor Day will be a year. That's yeah. awesome, so. man. And she's here now? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah. Well, that's really neat. And then what do you 
doing uh running for city council <laughs> i want to know like being a, being a crazy man i want to know yeah. the flow of that like yeah. did it did it naturally like is it something you saw that you were like i mean a lot of times it comes i think some of our greatest purpose or passion comes from even a place of pain sometimes mm -hmm. or injustice or just like frustration yeah. or mm -hmm. this is a problem and no one else is finding the solution and i feel like i could do a little bit better mm -hmm. or a lot better yeah. and so how do i step up step in yeah and and it, i want just a quick story is i have a friend yeah. named justin brown in uh oklahoma city mm -hmm. and very successful yeah. entrepreneur mm -hmm. um had a venture capital group had had a, a bunch of businesses that yeah. that really were in service and taking care of people um and he'd never really wanted to do anything uh public service yeah. and was just an entrepreneur and an opportunity came up to where the governor asked him which he never even met the governor I, mm -hmm. I got to go to lunch with him right after he met with the governor and the lunch with him the second time he met after the governor turned the governor down the first time he goes no i'm not interested uh -huh. second time he's like hey i have four positions i need you to pick one and uh, he goes, if you even have 1% interest, we're going to meet again. Um, I need you to choose this. And he goes, the only one I would choose is um, DHS, taking care of the foster care system, mm -hmm. those kiddos, the elderly, and the disabled. Mm -hmm. He goes, that's the only thing that I'm, I'm passionate about. Yeah. And it's been so cool hearing updates and updates and updates these last few years about how much it's changing up there. He's a mission-minded, like, servant yeah. servant leader that that just wants to take care of people. Yeah. And it's been really inspiring. He's brought me up there to speak to 6,000 DHS employees. And like, even though he didn't want it, the way that it happened, it was just the universe, everything lining up saying like, take this, take this, take this, you got to. And he took a big leap, yeah. left the business behind um, to, to focus on this. And like, it's been really inspiring to yeah. like meet people, see people, whether it's on staff there that say they're re-energized. Mm -hmm. He, his first order of business was like, I'm not coming in. He looked at the budget, said, I'm not coming in unless you raise the average salary by $13,000. He goes, we can cut this and this and this, but our frontline workers, yeah. the reason the turnover is so crazy is because they're not paid enough mm -hmm. and because they have no service for their own mental health whenever mm -hmm. they're yeah. seeing trauma after trauma after yeah. trauma. And so just like from the get go, he was like trying to make changes to like take care of people. Mm -hmm. um, and so anyways, I, amazing long story, yeah. but his story of that is like, wow, you're doing it right. Like you well, did it for the right reasons. Yeah. Well, and it's, it, I think I relate to the idea that if you come into it from a position of a problem solving and, and then B, if you, if you view your your own experience set and skill set as a a tool to apply to a problem, then that's where you're going to be really helpful. Like for me, I, you know, I wasn't thinking, okay, and this, if I just do this right, then in 2022, I'm going to be to run for office. You know, I was, for me, I was, I've been honestly planning another business for the last four years. Hmm. And it wasn't until, um, I mean, I've been, I've always been really engaged in Austin, especially I've served on, a lot of nonprofit boards. I was the chair of the board for the AIDS HIV group in Austin. Um, I've been on the Austin PBS board and I was, I was on the city commissions. So I was the vice chair of the music commission for the city and stuff like that. So I've just, been just real quick as yeah. a founder of a nonprofit myself, like, dude, I'm so grateful for people that serve on boards that help yeah. make it happen. And just had a board meeting yesterday and I'm just, yeah, I know I got one tonight. So it's, encouraged. Yeah. yeah. Thank I you mean, for what you do. Well, and yeah. I think, I think a lot of people who come from like business backgrounds, 
there's this false notion of, okay, I'll start, they, they kind of view serving on boards as like retirement. Like, okay, after I'm successful, then like I'll save my later years for like helping people. And it's like, I've always viewed it as like, no, no, no. When you, right when you have the experience, that's when you should start trying to figure out ways to apply it and help others. Um, so, you know, what it say, the, the phrase, uh, lift as you climb, hmm. you know? Um, and I've, so I've always been into that. Um, and so I've always been really engaged in the Austin community and stuff, but the last couple of years, especially during the pandemic, um, during, you know, post George Floyd, all these things, it's, I've truly felt called like, oh, wow, the, my excitement about this other business I was planning, it just completely dissipated. It's like, mm -hmm. no, this is where I need to go and help solve problems. And the one thing that actually really did it for me was, um, you probably remember, um, Ahmad Arbery. Yeah. He was the, the, the gentleman in Georgia who was running and he was killed. Um, I'm, I'm a distance runner. I've been distance running, you know, since I was 12 years old, probably, you know, run 50 miles a week kind of thing. Um, and running has always been like a sanctuary for me. Like I feel safe. I feel comfortable. It's like free time for me. It's like restorative. And that specific day when I found out about his death, um, I, my wife and I were going for a run and we live in a nice, pretty nice neighborhood in Austin. And for the first time in my life, I mean, I, again, I've run solo as a black man in like deep South, South Carolina, Texas, and always felt safe. But that specific day, I, we got like half a mile in and I like broke down crying. Hmm. And I, I physically, like I, in my body, I was like, I don't feel safe. Like I was looking around, like I, we got to go home. Um, and so I ended up or helping to organize a run for a mod in our neighborhood, um, the That's following great. week. And it just, I truly just felt called like every sig signal for the next year was just Joa, you have to do this. You have to do this. And so did people yeah. start asking you like, Hey, yeah. you run <laughs> people started asking me there. People started encouraging me. People started asking me. Um, and, and the way I see it is. I don't like all the ambition attached to politics. Like even now I'm running for city council, which is like a pretty, pretty low level public office. But even now I have people who are like, oh, he's going to be the next mayor or, or he's going to be running for Congress or he's going to be the governor. He's going to do all this stuff. And it's this industry that has been assigned this value. Like, oh, the people who go into that, they want more for themselves. And that's nothing could be further from the truth for me. Like I, I would be totally happy if I could win the city council seat, solve a lot of problems in Austin around affordability and housing and things like that. And then four, eight years from now, go back to being an entrepreneur. You know, like I'm not looking at this as like, here's the beginning of my march towards the White House. You know, like what I just- What a better world we would have if more politicians saw it yeah. like that. Or I, if we just had a system I know. like that rather and than career just, politicians. Well, you know, I, the thing that I can relate it to is in startup world, you know, and now it's gone down, but in the 2010s, when everyone was like, you know, seeing social network and seeing all the money that was going into tech, I had all these young people coming up to me like, oh, I have an idea for an app. And I'm like, hey, 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 slow down. The world doesn't need another app. What problem are you solving? It's like, go into this from a lens mm -hmm. of wanting to solve a problem, not just like, oh, I have an app that I want to make a million dollars off of or whatever, right? And it's the same thing with politics. It's like, oh, I want to be in Congress. It's like, mm -hmm. no one cares. Like, yeah. what problems are you going to solve? Yeah. No, I agree with that, man. Like the career politician thing is, is, is hard for me to reconcile in my own mind. And then it's almost like, 
So I, I love, I've always, in professional fighting, I've always been the, the young guy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, not anymore. I'm 35 <laughs> with white in my beard, but, uh, still haven't fought anyone younger than me yet. But I, I have always surrounded myself with people that are older, wiser, that could mentor, that I could learn from, that I could ask questions from all that different stuff. But then I think about some of the, <laughs> no, <I'm> oh. just <laughs> <kidding>. <laughs> Amy and I have a, a, an age difference. I'm older. Um, <laughs> but I, I, um, I just think that at some point, whenever you are in such a powerful position, like I never want to say something up against someone because of their age or something, mm-hmm. but there needs to be some sort of like, not a physical fitness, but mm-hmm. a mental, emotional fitness test. That like, are you still with it to like really lead people yeah. well mm-hmm. and serve people and, and be able to problem solve? Mm-hmm. Um, so what yeah, somebody problem? the other day called, this is just a side note, called the Supreme Court a gerontocracy. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it kind of is, right? Uh, yeah. Lifetime appointments, but that's a total side note. The, yeah. The point I guess I was trying to get to with you, what, when, whenever you are looking at some of these problems, what, like I, well, you mentioned affordability. Mm-hmm. It's like, whoa, like it's so different. I moved here a year and a half ago mm-hmm. and uh, rent's been raised mm-hmm. not once, but twice already. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, holy smokes, like this is uh, it's not sustainable mm-hmm. long-term for, yep. for people that are, are He's raising married families. to a musician. Yeah. I know. You get it, you get I know. it front lines. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the way I look at it is the, the first thing is we need to have people in office who are actually close to the problems. Mm-hmm. And it then doesn't mean maybe you're not living it yourself, but that means you need to be out there in the community See close it. to the people who are facing it like the musicians and artists, like first responders, like this city, I mean, our EMS department, our police department, they're, they're grossly understaffed in part because the wages aren't high enough for, you know, paramedics to be able to afford to live in Austin. Right. So I think in a lot of ways we need people who are, who have a true desire to want to be close to the communities that they're trying to serve. Um, and that's, that's something that I definitely am. I, I have in troves because I've just, I mean, those are the people I think are the coolest people anyway, honestly. Like when I think about who I want to hang out with in Austin, it's like bartenders, musicians, artists, small business owners, you know, it's people who are, who are really in the thick of what this city is. Um, So I think that's part of it. And then I think, I think another part of it is, I think there's a lot of um, entitlement that, that politics gives people. And, and what I mean by that is that there are a lot of public officials who think that the hardest thing that they do is campaign. They wow. think they they literally think if I can just win this election or win get reelected, then I can you know then I'm good. Then I can coast. Yeah, no, really. Like I've I've met a lot of public officials through this process, and I get that energy. Like they probably want to campaign and then start preparing for the next campaign yeah, instead of what, actually doing the yeah, work. Yeah, it's like whoa, like they think that the hard part of like the only time they're out in the community is like during reelection season. And it's like, Whoa, this is problematic. And so I think my experience from entrepreneurship, what it's really prepared me for is campaigning is kind of like fundraising. It's like, yes, you need to be out there meeting people and networking and doing that. But fundraising is the least important part of how to run a business. It's Mm -hmm. important. You need, it's a tool. You need to do it so that you can, you know, open, you know, expand your business and stuff. But the most important thing that I do for my business and have done for my business for the last almost 10 years is build a community. Mm. And 
that's like what I want to bring to public service. Well, that's what politicians should be doing is building community, building communities. Yeah. You know, bringing yeah. them together. And lifting them up. And it does, up. sometimes it doesn't mean that I need to be in front. Sometimes it just needs, means I need to be of community. Mm. You know, like I don't need to lead a community of musicians. I'm not a musician, but I can definitely support them from yeah. public office. Right. So I think that's a lot of things. A lot of people are in it for themselves and their own ambition. Um, and not truly trying to solve problems. And they'll do the bare minimum of problem solving in order to maintain the position. Yeah, wow. Um, it's heartbreaking. I, yeah, yeah, heartbreaking. But I, I, I'm wondering how to ask this because it's come up like twice in our conversation, maybe three times now. So um, we, we, I've started a charity and, and we do a lot of work in Africa, mm -hmm. in Congo and Uganda. And I've seen discrimination on a level that is like, man, inhumane people called animals mm -hmm. treated like animals. Um, uh, and it's, it's been, it's been really hard sometimes. And I've, I've gone and seen doctors and Dr. Daniel Eamon, who's a guest on the show. And you can see on my brain scans, like PTSD from like some of the traumatic events. Um, I didn't know you could see that in a brain until I saw him and then, yeah. uh, certain parts of it light up. And seeing kids dive dirty water and, and, and helping dig their graves, like just, mm -hmm. just some brutal stuff. But I say that because I, I love them. They're like my second family, all these things. But at the same time, I never want to say that I could pretend, um, to have, to know or be able to relate to a moment like you shared earlier where you're going on a run and you have a moment that's very real a visceral reaction mm -hmm. to feeling unsafe in your own neighborhood running. So for someone that hasn't experienced that, um, how, how do you, how could you explain that to help someone relate it? Because I'll, I'll I, I yeah. might be talking too much, but no. I, I have gone to treatment twice in my life for addiction. There's been times I've been pulled over with drugs in my car and I might have had a moment of being scared or like really thinking, Oh no, I'm going to be in trouble. Mm -hmm. And Oh, what will people think or things like that? Mm -hmm. But I never had a moment where I'm like in fear of my life mm -hmm. just because I was pulled over. Mm -hmm. And so I mean, I think this is a really important. I've, I've had two of those about. moments. You have? Yeah. Can you my, share that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, actually, when my wife, then girlfriend, when she moved from LA to Austin, um, we were subletting a, a, a place and um, they, it was a friend. He's a professor at UT and he had let us use his car. He was out of the country. And so we were in his neighborhood. And I don't know why, but we got pulled over. And so I pulled into this convenience store parking lot and police, you know, were behind me. And I can't remember who, I, I really can't remember who had just been shot, but a, a black man had just been recently shot after, you know, before this. Um, so I'm in there and, and I'm like super nervous. And my then girlfriend, now wife, She's like, what, what, what's going on? Like, are you okay? What's why it's okay. It's they, you know, probably just have a tail edit or something. And I'm just like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like I'm in a life or death situation right now. 
Like, I really, like, you know, and cop comes and, you know, talk and license and all that stuff. And thankfully it, it worked out and it was quick. But afterwards, I just, like, was, like, crying in the car. Mm-hmm. And she, she, you know, she's, like, she kind of like what you're saying, like, she doesn't have that experience, but she's learned that, like, that's what, it, like, she's learned through me that kind of, like, what it feels like in the sense of, like, it feels like a very mundane or routine thing, like running or, like, getting pulled over for, you know, speeding or whatever it could be. It feels like having a very mundane routine thing forcing you mentally, physically to start getting into, like, fight or flight mode, you know? It feels like it's like, oh, wow, like, I didn't even know, like, 10 minutes ago, everything was okay. And now I, like, literally think that I may not make it out of this thing alive. Um, so, yeah, when I, I – and I, I imagine a lot of black men especially feel the same way. When we get pulled over, we're not even thinking about, oh, I'm going to get in trouble. You know? It's like trouble is, like, something bad may happen to me. You know what I mean? Mm. And so when I was – um, my first experience with this – was when I was 17, no, I was 16. Um, and so I, my sophomore year of high school, we moved back from South Carolina to Colleen. And I missed all my friends in South Carolina. So the following summer, um, after my junior year of high school, I, I went back to South Carolina and stayed with my grandmother and my uncle for the summer. And I worked at Pizza Hut, uh, the old Pizza Hut I used to work at there. <laughs> and one day, um, I didn't have my license yet. So my uncle would pick me up from work. And one day I got paid. So he picked me up, he took me to the bank, I deposited my check, and and then we went to, actually, no, no, I did not go to the bank. I didn't have a bank account yet. He picked me up and I went to a check cashing place. And I cashed my check and next door was a liquor store. So he went and he got some beer, put it in the car, and then we get in the car, we're going. We're going driving back to my grandmother's house. And I remember this, there was a light that was green and as we're going through the light, it turns yellow. And then, so we're going, and then out of nowhere, sirens. We get pulled over. And so we're waiting there. There's a cop behind us. And then two more police cars come. So now there's six police officers. And I'm like, what's going on? And they come to the side. And they, you know, my uncle is like six, three, six, four, 200 something pounds. He's like, you know, bigger guy. So, they have us get out of the car. They search us. They have us open up the trunk. They like ransack the car, all this stuff. And they say that my uncle fits a description. They arrest him or they handcuff him, put him in the car and leave. Again, I can't, don't have my license. I'm, I'm just there on the curb now. They, they've all left. And I'm and then I end up having to walk to a payphone. And I call my grandmother and she comes. And that was my first time like really like not – understanding like that that kind of stuff happens and so that didn't feel like a life or death situation but that's definitely the last time that i had the naivety that it wasn't you know every time every instance since has been one in which it's like okay something bad could happen there could be some gross misunderstanding of whatever is going to happen in this car um and so which is amazing because I've had, I mean, I've had amazing experiences with police officers. So I, yeah. I really like, again, I'm, I'm, I'm running for office right now. And I was, I, at my fundraiser, I tell people all the time, I'm like, 
we need to solve these affordability issues so we can hire more police officers, so mm. we can hire more paramedics, so we can pay people adequately and they can be afford to live in this city and all this stuff. So I'm not like a person who's like, all these people are the same. Um, but I've definitely had enough experiences where there is a certain mindset that that does infiltrate departments. And I've had really almost friendly experiences, you know, compared to some that I know friends of mine have had, um, where they're the ones getting handcuffed or arrested or whatever for wrong for reasons. And then they're like, they get to the station, they're like, oh, never mind, you don't, you're not this person. And they let them go. And it's like, there's no recourse. You're just like, wait. So I just had this whole kind of traumatic experience of yeah. being confused with someone and then, but nothing happens, you know? So I'm I, honestly fortunate that I, that hasn't been my experience. Um, but I really, I mean, to me, again, going back to the earlier though, about the victim mentality thing, even with all that said, part of why I'm running for office is because we need people who can have all these different nuanced experiences yeah. and still be clear headed and still really come to these things from a, a, a desire to like solve problems for an entire community and not like I'm in there so I can do this. It's like, no, that's I'm, I'm in there so that I can help this whole city be better. Yeah. And some of that change. is law enforcement, public safety, some of that, but, but, but most of it is just helping everyone have better access to living better lives. Hmm. Most people just want to have good quality of life. So the better, whatever the government can do to facilitate that and not disrupt that or hinder it, then the better. Yeah. I'm in total agreement. And thank you for, for going through all that because one, I'm like you, I've, through martial arts, my martial arts journey, I've been able to help so many first responders, whether they're firefighters, which they're always really strong, <laughs> um, and and police officers uh, doing their combatives or their hand to hand mm -hmm. and and doing jujitsu. And I have a it's called a mean mount where I'm mounted on top of someone. That's their lifeline. Getting back to their their belts, yeah. right? Their handcuffs, mm -hmm. their gun, their pepper spray, whatever it is, or their taser. Um, and so I've helped a lot of police train. And man, nine out of 10 are, I, I mean, yeah, just yeah, making a guess, yeah. but they're, they're incredible. Yeah. They're, they're awesome. Uh, they're, they got into it for the right reason. Um, but then, I mean, I think it's a miss where you got to be able to talk about it, mm -hmm. whichever way it is, yep. like, like talk about the good cases. Cause oftentimes those aren't shared about mm -hmm. how guys go out of their way to help people. Um, that are, that are doing that. But then on the other side, th this is real and mm -hmm. it does happen. So we can't just pretend like it doesn't. Yeah. And so I think a lot of, uh, probably middle-aged white men like me, we just, we, we don't get it. Mm -hmm. Um, and haven't taken the time to ask the questions, understand, mm -hmm. um, or put ourselves in those shoes. And so thank you for that. And then I think it's awesome. Your lived experience uh, through the business world, through your mother raising you the way that she did <laughs> and, and, and helping so many others, two dozen, uh, you know, kids in foster care after that and everything you've gone through, man. Uh, that's why I'm excited for you running because, um, you know, I think sometimes career politicians that, that just do it, I don't get yeah. it, but like they get so detached, right. I know from the real world, I know. from what's really happening I know. from the people they serve. Yeah. And so I'm really grateful that you are doing this. Yeah. I mean, and I'm excited because I feel like I was telling someone this the other day. I w local government is local first, government second. And they were like, well, what do you, what do you mean? And I was like, well, say that one more time. Local government is local first yep. and government second. Hmm. 
And so often what happens is it's government first and local second. And we're seeing here in Austin, for example, that the problems when that happens, when if you're, if you don't prioritize local, then what happens is you don't understand the issues that the community is facing. You're not close enough to the issues. You don't lift up the people locally who do have the solutions Mm -hmm. until it's too late. Um, and, and mostly I think what happens is you start doing the kinds of things that make people feel apathy towards government. Mm. Whereas if, if something's local, then people naturally want to lean into it. Mm -hmm. You know, if you say, Oh, if you say you're opening a bar, they're like, Oh, that's cool. If you say you're opening a local bar, they're like, okay, already it's like, okay, that sounds more interesting. And same thing with anything like local first is just a good point of view, I think in general. And so like in Austin, for example, we had, have had a big issue around with homelessness, for example, and the politicians don't have the solution for homelessness alone. Like you can't, you can't go to city hall and just, you know, get the solution to homeless. That's a, that's a big community wide problem that honestly, there are a lot of nonprofits that are far closer to the problem, Mm -hmm. far closer to the solution too. And what what we what government what local government should do in that situation is find ways to lift up those people right and in Houston actually just had a really really amazing New York Times story about all the work they've done over the last several years um to rehouse 25,000 people wow. meanwhile here in Austin we've rehoused like maybe 1,000 or maybe 2,000 people um and part of that reason is because Houston has done it proactively They've found ways to empower the local people who are really doing the work. Whereas here in Austin, we've we've been really, uh, I think, latent to respond to it. I mean, I think City Hall, for example, City Council didn't do a homelessness summit until I think it was November of 2020. And if you talk to any local business owner downtown, they're like, wait, this has been an issue down here for five, six, seven, eight years. So why are you why is it not until middle of the pandemic that you're doing a summit on homelessness? And so we just Government, what government does is it waits till the problem's big enough till there's political will. Mm. You know, the, the solutions should not require political will. Solutions should just be good, smart people coming together to, to address a problem. And, but if you're waiting to political will, then what you have is public officials who are like deciding whether or not they're going to win or lose reelection based on the result. And that's, I think that's where we have a lot of issues in the city um, and state and country. Um, so for me, I'm just, entrepreneurship has taught me how to read the market Hmm. and try to triangulate yourself so that you're close to a solution that the market needs. But it's also taught me to have enough conviction in what I'm doing to not wait for everyone else to decide that that's what should be done either. And I think in public office, we need more of that. People who have the conviction to lead and present solutions or lift up solutions without waiting to see if that's the thing that's going to win them re-election. Yeah. Having their finger on the pulse and being able to predict like, yeah. uh, like foresight. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. That's really good. Well, so the title of the show is Overcome. What do you think it takes um, to overcome adversity, to overcome odds, to what is that in the human spirit or in you yeah. that, that allows you to see things, to rise up and overcome. Um, man, I love thinking about things like this and <laughs> me too. I, yeah, because it's, this is the stuff of life. Hmm. 
It really is. This is life is so much richer and more full and more fulfilling if you take on whatever adversities in front of you. If you take on that as that's the stuff that's going to make you the person that you want to be. Success doesn't make you the person you want to be. It doesn't. I mean, it it's it's awesome, you know, but the climb is so much better. And so to me, I think I think the first thing that it takes to overcome any odds is to embrace the adversity. You 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 have to take it on and say, "Oh, this is happening." Okay. Cool. You know, like I I've been a distance runner for years and I was I was a I, I'm still not a great racer. Like I don't, I don't race very well. Um, and, but I, but I love running and my best runs are training runs where I just want to have a good run. And then something happens like, oh, I start having cramps or, oh, this happens. And I start running or I keep running hard or fast because I'm chasing like that feeling of, of running. I'm not chasing like a time. I'm not chasing some external validation. I'm just like, no, like, oh, this is trying to prevent me from having a good time on my run today. No, I'm going to have a good time on my run today. Yeah. And I think in life, I think embracing the adversity is, is the number one thing. Um, I think the second one is realize that whatever is happening is happening for you. Mm. And I, I think, um, I can't remember if it was Sky or some one of your episodes where, just flipping that script of like life isn't happening to you. It's happening for, for you. you. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, however many times someone needs to hear it, they should just keep hearing it, yeah. you know, because I look at all the things that I, you know, my, my dad leaving. And what I didn't mention is that my dad leaving when I was th- three, that wasn't bad because I was too young to really understand his departure. It didn't really hurt me that much. It hurt my older brothers more because they were older. <laughs> what really hurt me was, Eight years later, when I was 11, 10, 11, my dad came back out of nowhere for like six months hmm. and just like re-injected himself into our lives for six months. And was then he, he back lo- with your mom or was he- was he... back with my mom for a couple of months and that didn't work. And then he was living yeah. up the street for a few months. And then, and then he just left again. Oof. And so that one's the one that actually like hurt. So the last time I spoke to my dad, I think I was, I think it was 12. And I was supposed to go visit him in New Jersey and he decided, he called me and said he didn't think that was a good idea. That was my last phone call with him, last communication with him ever. And then actually I say that and then a couple of years ago, um, he, he's kind of been in and out in jail, of jail and he got out of prison and he wrote me a Facebook message. And he was like, hey, I saw that you wrote a book. Can you help me with my book? That was my, the first <laughs> communication that he had with me in over 20, almost 25 years. Wow. wow. And I could look at that as like, oh, that's, oh, what was me? And that's, you know, like all that stuff. But to, to me, the way I look at it is like, man, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Because my, my dad helped me, I think, reaffirm to myself who I am, which is I'm someone that can overcome whatever is tossed my way. Um, and so I think, yeah, I think one, embracing the adversity to know that if it, if you are encountering adversity, it's happening for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think, I think the third thing is, and th- this is something that I've really 
gotten into more right now. I'm, I'm finishing reading um, a book, um, Second Mountain by David Brooks. Okay. And I mean, a lot of people know David Brooks from his political stuff and his stuff in the New York Times. But the the thing I like about the book is he talks about how, you know, most people, the first mountain that they have in life is like getting themselves out of like a tough, they grew up poor, they're not poor anymore. Or they, they you know, they've had trauma, they got through the trauma or whatever. That, that's like the first mountain. The second mountain is that he talks about is learning how to take your own experiences and journey and then pointing it at a bigger thing than yourself. Mm. You know, whether that's your family or your church or a mission or your, for you, you have your nonprofit. For me, I'm running for office, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. And I really like it because it's um, it's very much, it's it's hitting on this this third piece for me in terms of overcoming odds, which is like, if you want more, then you have to give more. Hmm. And a lot of people use odds and adversity as a reason to be more selfish. Like, oh, this is happening. I'm going to be even more focused on myself. And, oh, woe is me. And this is happening to me and all these things. And they're selfish, selfish, selfish. And what I've learned is that actually the best way to overcome that is actually pointing that energy and that fire at and other problems, other people's problems and helping other people. That's why I serve on nonprofit boards. That's why I'm doing all these other things because that's the way to really get that. Again, I use the word helpers high. Like that's that helpers high. I really love that, man. Thank you for sharing because even thinking about that, I'm going to go get that book, Second Mountain. Yeah. um, Because that's, that's so true because I think, I think you're right. Oftentimes people are, are, they get more focused on themselves instead of like, Hey, wait, you just did this now take that. Uh, I, I have to look at it in recovery. Mm-hmm. There's guys that have really helped me, um, in this process of overcoming addiction Yeah, that gave me the gift that yeah. was given to it's them. It's like sponsorship, yep. right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. Yep. And, uh, and it's such a gift that they've been given me and I'm so excited to give that gift to others as well mm-hmm. and share my story, their story with them. It's almost like a lineage of like, look, you see me, but look at this guy and that guy and that guy, yep. you know, they've, they've all done it before me and, uh, you can do it too. Yeah. So that's, that's inspiring. Thank you, um, for that, that piece of advice. And I do have a, a question. Yeah. How have you, because you weren't angry at two or three. Mm-hmm. And then it did hit where it hurt at 11 or 12. Mm -hmm. And then it came back around 20 Mm -hmm. years later. Mm -hmm. How have you, because you're right, there are these micro and or macro and micro or major Mm -hmm. traumas and smaller traumas, but you're so positive and problem solving, like oriented Mm -hmm. and, and all these things. and, And you don't have the victim mentality when you could. But how have you dealt with specifically whether it's anger or resentment or even just disappointment mm-hmm. that um that dad wasn't there or yeah. hasn't yeah. you know yeah man i i I think I probably went through the first thirty thirty five years of life telling myself that I could just through force, like force of will, like sheer force of will, um, like lift myself past any adversity and outthink whatever was happening and outsmart it and all this stuff. And 
the last five, seven years, I've gotten, I've become much more aware of the strength that actually comes in emotionally, like allowing emotional space mm. to be in that pain yeah, and be in those moments of kind of in reassessing and re-encountering trauma um, and struggle and not trying to overpower it as much as you're trying to create space for it and then kind of rise above it. So you kind mm. of can have omnipresence over it. Like, Oh, okay. Oh, that's happening in me. That's, that's something that's emotionally taking me to a place that I don't like necessarily. Um, and actually I have little tricks sometimes too. Like oh, great. I start feeling myself. If I start feeling myself kind of feeling like I'm going there sometimes I just embrace it now. Mm. So I'll have like a few hours alone, usually on like a Saturday or a Sunday morning. And I'll, watch a series of YouTube. Like what I do is I go on YouTube and I watch, first I watch accomplishment videos. So I'll watch like people doing Olympic performances or people having just like amazing performances and just like reaching their goals. And that'll get me into a heightened state of like emotional being where yeah. I'm like, I'm like on a high from just watching people like get a gold medal or something. And then I'll watch a bunch of sad videos. And usually it's scenes from movies that make me sad. Like I'll watch the ending of the movie Philadelphia, mm. or I'll watch the scene in Goodwill Hunting where Matt Damon and Robin Williams hug and all that. I'll watch those scenes so I, and I get myself to a point where I like just cry. Mm. And I'll literally like, I get myself to a point where I'm like, I am allowing myself to feel all the things that I'm feeling and, and I'm just, I'm in it. And I'm just like processing whatever has been on my mind, heart or whatever. And, and then, and then I come out of it and then I'm just like, okay, that's good. Like, yeah. instead of like waiting for it to build and then usually when people repress it or yeah. suppress it and they let it build and it becomes anger, mm -hmm. I let it build. And then I like embrace, embrace it. And then I let, let it come out through like emotional outpouring like that. Instead of it being anger, it becomes like more of like giving myself a big hug. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's kind of the last five, seven years. That's what I do. I literally, my, my wife knows too. Like, and I tell her, I'm like, I just want to watch sad stuff, you know? And like, she'll be like, okay, I'm going to go run errands. And I'm just like, you know, and it's like, good. <laughs> yeah. I, I like it because it's not, it's not stuffing the feelings or not feeling it. It's leaning into feeling through it. Mm -hmm. And, um, Amy really helped me on the, the last time I went to treatment saying, Hey, you have to face it all feel it all so that magic can happen mm -hmm. so that a miracle can be born. Mm -hmm. But if you don't face this shit, if you don't feel it, yeah. if you just avoid it, um, you know, and, and I used to think like you, where I have to attack it, attack mm -hmm. what's been attacking yep. me. Yep. And I, th I think there is something good about the confidence knowing that if something comes my mm -hmm. way, I can handle it or yeah. I can get through it or I can do this or that. Yeah. But if you don't allow yourself to process it, um, and you don't allow yourself to feel, feel it. it. I just did a podcast with somebody else this morning mm -hmm. and he was telling me about this eight figure coach and she was talking about why she's more successful. Uh, and she said, it's really because I allow myself to feel more than most people. And he was talking about it in the context of sobriety mm -hmm. and how we pick up our phone or we pick up a drink or we pick up whatever it is to not feel those feelings. Mm -hmm. And you, this is so interesting what you're saying. Like you found a way to almost accelerate your feelings mm -hmm. to really get them out. And I, I think that's super fascinating. So you're, 
accelerating your feelings and in turn, you know, success unfolds. So, yeah. And I think, you know, the, the saying, um, wisdom is knowledge applied hmm. and, you know, cause what happens, I think, especially with trauma or any kind of like emotional pain people are holding, there's the knowing, you know it. So you're just re-traumatizing yourself by knowing the thing happened or knowing that you went through this thing. And it only moves over to wisdom once you start applying like, okay, you know it, but okay, well, how do you go through that and grow through that? And I kind of, what, what I've, what I'm trying to get to is where to me, it's like, okay, knowledge, that's like, there's, there's acceptance, then there's knowledge, then there's wisdom. And then the step after that is where you get into like sage mode mm. where it's, you know, that's where you can disperse wisdom, yeah. right? You know, yeah. like a sage, a sage grandmother or someone, right? Yeah. And that's that's like the North Star for me. I want to get to a place where like right now I know, I know how to help people with tangible life things. Like I can help you with your resume. I can help you, you know, get a job. I can help you raise money. I can help you go get business, things like that. But I want to increasingly get more into like helping people with the more intangible, like emotional stuff. And how to couple the emotional and the tangible stuff. Um, and I realized that that's only going to happen once I, for myself, know how to you know, apply the wisdom in my own life in all facets and not get to any points where I'm emotionally overcome by a moment. And I'm, I'm, I'm definitely not anywhere near there. I mean, there's still moments where I'm like, okay, this is just too much. Like this is. You're not enlightened. <laughs> <Yeah>. No, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> but but I, I get that. Like the sage part. I like what you're saying because yeah, even, even going back to what you do, the visualization of allowing yourself to get amped up by people being awesome yeah. and doing great things, um, achieving their goals and then bring yourself back down. And then, and then, so if we break it down a little more than that, like I'll go get in float tanks or I'll, I'll have times where I'm, I'm really trying to visualize for a fight or a goal or mm -hmm. things like that. So you start with those videos that are positive. You go to the other heartwarming or, or gut wrenching ones mm -hmm. that, that yep. really tug on your heartstrings. Mm -hmm. Then after that, are you having a time of, of meditation or, or focus or intentionally like thinking about a situation, a person, a, uh, a mm -hmm. problem or, or what is that space yeah. like there? Usually what that space is, is going into it. I've been doing that, uh, battle of gut or intuition and mental capacity. And I usually get to that place where I'm like, okay, mentally I've been turning this over in my head too much and I need to just let it go. Let it go. And so I watch the videos and I get to myself where I'm in a, like an emotional kind of instinct gut place. And usually what happens after that is I'm, that's closest I get to like a quiet place in my mind where I'm not thinking anymore and I'm just feeling and I'm, I'm, I'm a really, really good curator in those moments. Hmm. And usually it's like saying it's emotionally saying no to things and calling down what I'm, what I'm focused on and caring about. So usually what ends up happening is I usually come out of those moments and maybe going in, I, there were th 10 things on my mind. I usually come out of those moments saying, these are the two things that, that really mean something right now. Hmm. 
So the like you know let let go of those other things. They're happening. They're in motion. Whatever. The, these are the two things that like that I understand now are really weighing on my heart, and I'm going to focus on those two things. So it, usually it feels like an editing process to do that. It's like a cleanse. And then it's like, I, you know, if I, if I were to go in with a to-do list before that, it would be like a lot of things. And then afterwards it's like, okay, no, 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 no. Okay. Just this, this, and this. Okay, good. And then I feel really good. I feel lighter. Yeah. You know, I feel like I've had a big sigh of relief, you know, so. Like clarity. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna try this sometime. Just so yeah. you know, if you have yeah. any any good suggestions on clips, oh, I'll, maybe I'll, you can I'll send, send me you some. Okay. Yeah, no, I really there. I because I, I'll, I'll watch like um I really will. I watch certain Olympic moments of people. It's I, I watch that because it's you know it, since it's once every four years, you know that it's like someone's been pouring their whole self mm-hmm. into that, right? And you know you can watch people like reach their goal. And then sometimes you see people who don't, right. And it's like, Oh, this thing happened and it, they didn't get the medal or whatever. Um, yeah. But that usually gets me to the place where I'm in an empathy mode because when you're, that's what's happening when you're watching videos like that, you're like, you're kind of surrendering to empathy mode. If you're, if you're, no, if you're, you know, you're watching something of someone like who's winning, you're like, you want to feel them winning. If they're losing, then you want to feel them losing, you know? And so and then I watch the sad movie scenes because that the, now I've taken the empathy like mode and taken it to like kind of more of like the, okay, this is going to tug at the heartstrings. Like you said, this is going to get to like the, the place where you know, like the breakthrough place, you know, mm-hmm. it's like the, the Matt Damon, the goodwill hunting scene. It's, it's, to, it's an emotional version of winning a gold medal. It's like you can go your whole life and never have that moment. A lot of people go their whole lives yeah. and they never have the breakthrough like that emotionally, right? It's and true. so that's why I like to watch those scenes where it's like, oh wow, they've they they got there. Yes, mm. they got it, you know? Um, so yeah, I'll send you some Rex. Okay. Thank you so much. <laughs> I would say maybe next time you do this, have you ever gone into a float tank or a float therapy? No, I really want to chamber. Um you can go, there's one called Kuya. It's okay. down by on it, the sponsor oh, yeah. of the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And they have these float rooms that are like spacey. Like mm-hmm. it's got like the cosmos yeah. in it and it's, it's an actual big room and it's, so it's warm to the temperature of your skin, 93 degrees. Mm-hmm. So if you get in a, a float tank, that's correct. It's not too hot, too mm-hmm. cold. It feels like you're floating on air um, because it's just your temperature of your skin. Yeah. A thousand, twelve hundred pounds of, of, uh, Epsom salt makes you float. And then you can really sit in there for 60, 90 or minutes or two hours. But what I really like about it is going in beforehand, the times that I just go right before I've never seemed to have had an ex- quote unquote experience. Mm-hmm. Like, like maybe you have, uh, or you, you set intention for, yeah. but whenever I go 20, 30 minutes before, and if it's about a fight or if it's about a speech that mm-hmm. I'm giving or about an event yeah. um, or about a problem solving for the nonprofit. Mm-hmm. If I go in there with and kind of have those 10 things on my mind or 20 things on my mind, if I kind of journal it out beforehand, have some music, drink some tea in the lounge or whatever mm-hmm. it is, and just kind of like breathe, set, meditate, go yeah. in there. It's like it's an hour feels like 10 minutes. Yeah. Um, because you kind of get in this flow mm-hmm. of visualization, things come to you, ideas, 
uh, for me, it'll be like the outcome of a fight and then mm -hmm. I'll go in it a week later. And what I saw actually just happened yeah. in the cage. So it's, it's really unique. I think that I might try, um, combining these two where I, first time I'll, I'll do it the way you do it. And the second way I might go to a float tank place and yeah. have headphones on and be watching some videos of people doing awesome stuff, then get an emotional <laughs> state and then get the float tank yeah. and have to be alone with my own thoughts. Yeah. Whatever that 60, is, like there minutes. are certain songs that I can play that get me to like a nostalgia kind of sad kid place. There's, that's what it feels like. Actually, it feels like kind of go, it, it, it feels like unlocking like child mm. self a little bit, mm. but having the awareness of your adult self and kind of looking like, okay, we're going to go back here. Okay. And like holding your child self's hand and saying, okay, you're, we're going to go here. So, yeah. yeah. I really like that finding resolution and finding uh, creativity. It seems like you're such a creative thinker <laughs> with, with being a problem solver. But I do want to respect your time, yeah. and uh, I do want to pull up the website for the people that are watching on YouTube. Mike, we got it pulled up now. Oh, yeah. Joa's political site. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Joa for Austin. Yeah. Dot com. Yeah. Are there any other websites that you would suggest people go checking out? But Man, this is awesome. That's the one. Joa for Austin. I mean, you know, Austin is the the district that I'm running for, city, uh, District 9, is it encapsulates when I when people think about Austin, whether they're in New York or Europe or Asia, if they've heard of Austin, without even knowing it, they're thinking of District 9 because it's downtown Austin, it's University of Texas, it's the capital of Texas, the building and all that. Um, it's the trail, a lot of the trail. Um, it's where South by Southwest happens. So, um, you know, I think in a lot of ways, I I believe that I reflect the district itself, you know, because yeah. my communicate, you know, my, my community of nonprofit and small business and tech and music and art and, you know, all these things. And so this district really, it's the front door to the city. It's the front door to the state. Um, and so I, I think if we're ever going to get this country, state, city to a place where problem solving is prioritized over politics, then why not start in my own backyard? Yeah. Well, I'm rooting for you. We're rooting for you. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Absolutely. It's been such a pleasure getting to know you. Yeah. And uh, thank you so much for being here. Yeah. Is there anywhere else people can go follow you, support you? Yeah. I'm, on social? A, I'm at Joa Spearman on everything. So J-O-A-H. I always say like Noah but with a J. Yeah. Um, you had a Noah shirt on today. Yeah, I know. I saw that. I know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. Um, and, um, and then also my, my, my company's Localer. So local EUR, like a connoisseur of local, um, it's an email subscription. If you have any trips coming up, I highly recommend it because we're in, like I said, 204 cities around the world. So whether you're going to Paris or Australia or Canada, we're probably in the city that you're landing in. Um, you might meet your wife just like Joey. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, and yeah, her, she, my wife just put out her new, her second album last That's Friday. Great. How can people um, follow that? Her name is Angelica Ray and um, Ray is R-A-H-E. Okay. And yeah, she's phenomenal. You, she sings in Spanish, but you trust me, I don't speak fluent Spanish. You do not need to know Spanish to like her music. If you're into R&B, soul, um, if you like everyone from Sade to Erica Badu, you're going to yeah. love her music. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> I pronounced her name all her name all wrong yesterday <laughs> on the radio. And as I said it, I said, I bet I'm saying that all wrong. But anyway, now I got it. <laughs> well, Joe, thank you again. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Really Thanks really for having me. Really I love this. This was so wonderful episode. Such no, a I mean, episode. this is like a conversation that you just don't get to have often enough. 
right? Like I, my wife and I talk about this, just wanting to have more enriching conversations where you really go there, Hmm. you know? Yeah. And it's not just surface of like, how are you doing? Oh, I'm, it's not, you know, it's people talk about, you know, people or busyness, you know, like I hate talking about busyness. Yeah. I would rather, and... much rather talk about emotional states of being. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> what you do. I, well, even going beneath the topsoil, um, in those, enri- just what you said, enriching conversations so that you, so that we can go out and enrich the world or the community mm-hmm. around us. So, yeah. man, I'm grateful for you and the heart that you have, uh, the mission that you're on. I'm excited to follow your journey Yeah, and uh, I'm looking forward to getting together again sometime. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank you. Hey, don't forget to send your overcome stories to overcomepodcast at gmail.com and also rate, review, subscribe, and follow Overcome with Justin Wren.